Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 1, and you'll find the uh, notes this morning's message in the bulletin. On the back of the insert, you'll find uh, the text as we work our way through one glorious long sentence. Now, this is now um, our third look at this sentence of four. And this morning, we'll be looking at the reality of being redeemed by the preeminent Christ. Redeemed by the preeminent Christ. I'd like to begin by reading this sentence, verses 3 through 14, in their entirety. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Oh, Lord God, as we look at this rich, rich passage, I pray that you would help us to see the glory contained here, the reality of our redemption, of your plan to exalt your son and make him the head of all things. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. So we've looked at this sentence in a number of ways. In our first message, we sort of did an overview, looking at every member of the Trinity being at work in our salvation. And we saw sort of a pattern emerge that the Father is doing almost all the activity in fact, the only active verb that can rightly be attributed to us, well, there's three, we hope, we hear, and we believe, show up, and we'll look at those next week, are done by the Father. We also notice that the Father is possessing things. He has, it's his will, and it's his glorious grace, and his plan. The other thing we notice is that the activity is taking place in the sphere of or by the agency of Christ. And so in him or in Christ occurs numerous times in this passage. In fact, the only time that pattern is broken is in our passage today, verse 7, through his blood. The his there is definitely Jesus' blood. But nearly in every other instance, it's in Christ or in him or by him, the idea being. And the Spirit seals and applies that salvation. We looked at that. Last week, then, we looked at the activity of the Father in predestining and choosing us for adoption as sons 
and to be holy and blameless before him. So there's one sense in which there's a, a past emphasis in the first chunk of this sentence. This week we look at what could be viewed as a present. And, and it's overlapping because even as we look at the present purpose, that present purpose has a view to a fullness of time in the future of Christ being preeminent. And then next week we'll look at the last two sections, uh, beginning in verse 11, in him, verse 13, in him, which really, um, even though they talk about predestination, are looking, I think, more focused on our future inheritance and our future state. So you can look at it as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You can look at it as past, present, future. But, but it really, it blends, it bleeds, it overlaps. It's one glorious benediction in sentence. But we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 this morning. And really looking at two more realities to bless God. If you remember, verse 3 sets out the theme God is to be blessed. He's to be spoken well of. He is to be praised by us. Why? Well, because he's blessed us. He has spoken good things to us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the rest of this benediction begins to unpack some of those specific blessings. So Paul opens us up. We are to speak well of and praise God because he has spoken well. He's spoken good things to us. Namely, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, then he begins to unpack some of them. And one of them, even as he chose us. That's one of the things he spoke well of. He chose you. He chose me before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. That's another spiritual blessing. And now we come to an even more magnificent blessing. And when you're looking at these, it's hard to stack them. But our redemption in Christ and his death has got to be at the pinnacle or close to the pinnacle of, of the blessings of God. So we're looking at two points. He blessed be God for redeeming his children, verses seven through eight, and blessed be God for revealing his plan. Blessed be God for redeeming his children. And then in verses nine through 10, blessed be God for revealing his plan. Now, those are the two particulars that Paul focuses on here. So let's dive in, verses seven through eight. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so point A, I put, we are having redemption, which is an awkward English structure, but it brings out the emphasis of the present tense. Paul's emphasis here is we currently possess something. We are currently possessing Redemption And that stressing of present tense is important because Paul can also speak in this epistle of redemption and the day of our redemption being yet future. In fact, the word for redemption in verse 7, we have redemption, is the word used in verse 14 of acquiring our possession. It's really the redemption of our inheritance, the redemption of our possession. There is a redemption yet to come. Look at chapter 4. Go over to chapter 4. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay? So we have redemption. I'm trying to emphasize that in my, my uh, notes here. As Paul, putting it in a present tense active voice and mood, emphasizes it. Even as we await a further redemption. We have redemption and we will be redeemed. That's the, the biblical tension that's in here. There's, there's a redemption that we have and there's a redemption for which we wait. 
And that's, that's the, the emphasis I'm trying to make here is on the present reality. He's focusing now on what redemption is it now that we have? Well, let's just look at it as he gives us some clarifying words. It starts with in him. So where does this redemption take place? Through our union with Christ. This goes back to his opening sentence that all these spiritual blessings are in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And so it's no surprise this blessing of redemption that we are having, where is it found? It's found in Christ. This redemption that we're going to speak about extensively this morning is only in Christ. There's no redemption in Allah. There is no redemption in Buddha. There's no redemption anywhere else to be found. This redemption is in Christ. It's our first point. Where? Where is this redemption that we're having? It's in Christ. It's through our union with Christ. Well, next, what does it mean? What does redemption mean? It's a word that only occurs 10 times in the New Testament. And it has a notion of being bought from slavery by a payment. Redeemed or bought, freed by a payment. Your blanks here are bought and freed. That's the idea. Um, Listen to to Exodus chapter 6. As the Lord God prepares to deliver the people from Egypt, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'll deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God frees the Israelites at Egypt. He frees them, delivers them. Or listen to the same word being used in Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we are having a freedom and a buy, we, are, we have been bought and delivered and freed. We're having this in Christ. And it's, it's the word picture similar to that of the Exodus from Egypt. God redeemed his people. He delivered them from slavery. He brought them out of slavery. He set them free. You and I have been redeemed in Christ. This is a tremendous blessing. This, of course, also presupposes some of the bad news. Part of the reason why many reject the gospel is they don't realize they're in a state that they need to be freed. They need to be set free. They need to be delivered. They think they're doing just fine. But here, for those of us who have eyes to see, we understand that God is praised precisely because he has bought us and freed us from slavery. We have been redeemed, bought and freed. In him we have, we are having redemption. In fact, if you remember when Jesus was up on the Mount of Glorification and and Peter and James were there with him and John and Elijah and Moses showed up, what did they speak with him about? About the exodus He's about to perform in Jerusalem. And so one of the biblical ways of looking at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is an exodus, a deliverance from slavery, a freeing of a people, a purchasing of a people. Paul, I think, is using that metaphor here in a a, um, parallel passage. And by the way, we will, as we study through Ephesians, be looking at Colossians again and again because so much of what Paul says in Ephesians is paralleled by what he says in Colossians. Listen to how he says it in Colossians 1.14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. It's nearly identical. Nearly identical. So where, where is this redemption that we're having? 
through our union with Christ. What does it constitute? It means that we have been bought and freed. Now, how? How is this redemption accomplished? Well, through his death. Through his death. We were bought with a price. In him, we have redemption through his blood. And the his, the antecedent of his, is the word that ends verse 6, the beloved. The praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Jesus is the beloved, and so it is his blood that accomplishes, that pays this price. And and here we're starting to get the, the center of the gospel. How is it that we can be delivered? We're, we're bought by a death. We're not bought, Peter says, by perishable things like gold or silver. We're bought by the death. Whenever you see the blood of Christ, it means his bloody death. Um, it, it would not have been enough for Jesus to come down to earth, give two or three pints, and then go back up to heaven. His blood in and of itself doesn't accomplish anything. It's his blood as it signifies his death, his bloody death. His violent death is what accomplished our redemption and our restoration. So when you see the reference to Jesus and his blood, it's always a reference to his bloody death, his violent death. There's power in the blood insofar as there's power in his bloody death on our behalf. So where? Through our union with Christ. The what? What does it mean? Bought and freed. How? How are we bought and freed? Through his death. Paul makes this point speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, 28. Paul gathers with them. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows he'll never see them again. He's charging the leaders, and he tells them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained or he bought with his own blood. So here we've got this blessing, this new blessing that Paul is focusing on in this benediction is the blessing of being bought and freed in Christ by his bloody death. Okay? And then he renames it. The the grammatical term is called apposition. You say something and you rename it. If I say, I was talking to Abner, my son, and I said, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, My son is renaming or telling you more about who he is, right? So Paul here says, we have redemption. That is the forgiveness of our sins. He's renaming or explaining what redemption is. So what sphere is our slavery? And this is important and significant. Israel was redeemed from physical slavery. They they had real earthly masters. They were really enslaved in an earthly sense. That is not the slavery that we have been freed from. There's also another significant difference. In one real respect, Israel's slavery was not their own doing, right? If you read the Exodus account, Israel comes in, they're honored, they're thought well of, and then in the narrative, through no fault of their own, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Because of this wicked Pharaoh, they become slaves. You can't point to anything in the narrative they did where their slavery was the just effect, right? So you can feel sorry for them. This happened to them. Well, perhaps our slavery is the same thing. Perhaps the slavery that God is freeing us from is not our fault, not our own doing. Well, this next clause, this renaming, erases any such thoughts. Israel was freed from a real slavery that was not their own doing. You and I are freed, bought and freed, 
by the forgiveness of our sins. By the forgiveness of our sins. What does it mean to be redeemed? Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, the slavery that you and I had, and if you're not in Christ, have, is a slavery that comes from sinning. Being a slave to sin. Jesus makes it clear in John 8. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. And our biggest problem is not socioeconomic. Our, our, our biggest problem is not institutional oppression. Our biggest problem is our sin and our transgression against a holy and just God. That is what has looming over all of our heads a judgment and a guilt and a punishment that can be likened to slavery. And so we are bought out of that debt, and we are freed through the death of Jesus. But understand that what you and I are redeemed from, unlike Israel, is precisely our fault. What you and I need redemption for is our sins and trespasses. What we desperately need is forgiveness for what we've done. And again, we're getting to the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's that we have this blessing from God in Christ that we have been bought and freed through the death of Jesus on our behalf, removing our guilt for our sin. It's, it's all, I mean, do you see how the, the, it's all packed in right here? Blessed be God for redeeming his children. Well, what does that mean? It's a blessing we have through our union with Christ, where we have been bought and freed through his bloody death, which means we are having the forgiveness of our sins. In fact, he's setting up what he's going to say in chapter 2. Look over to Ephesians chapter 2, where again, he points out what our biggest problem was. Remember, I, 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 when we did our first message on Ephesians, I suggested that chapter 2 is dealing with our past condition and our current condition singularly and corporately. So first, as an individual, here's what you formerly were like, here's what you are now. And then as a group, the Gentiles, namely, here's what you were like and here's what you have now. And notice what he emphasizes. He does not emphasize the evils that many in our day want to emphasize as the big problems. He does not say, and you were formerly living in a cisgendered, patriarchal, oppressive culture. Whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I'll leave for my betters to decide. That's not the problem, is my point. You... We're dead in your trespasses and sins. That's the problem. That, you, I don't, what's Jeremy's biggest problem? Jeremy. What's your biggest problem? You. What's wrong with the world? I am. You are. That's, that's what Christ came to resolve and to fix. Now, there'll be other cultural blessings that flow out of that, but understand the center of what this redemption, this exodus, this rescue mission, this redemption is about, is resolving the problem in two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See that picture of slavery? You are under another will. You are a child of darkness in the kingdom of darkness, and you were by nature doing those things of the ruler the kingdom of darkness, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There is a picture in three short verses of the slavery that we were bought and freed from due to our own sin, but God being rich in mercy. 
Testament and goes on to describe our salvation. That's the problem Christ came to solve. That's the fundamental problem of the world and humanity. Now, absolutely, as people are redeemed, as people enter the kingdom of light, there will be changes in the culture, there will be changes in the world. But first and foremost, this is why Christ came, to redeem his father's sons and daughters from slavery and bondage to sin, to set them free by purchasing, by paying the price with his own death, giving them the forgiveness of their sins. So that is the what of redemption. Now, according to what standard? How liberally do we have this redemption? Do we have a, maybe a little bit of redemption? A lot of redemption? How much redemption do we have? And it's staggering. According to the riches of his grace. That according to what modifies, links back to the having. We are having redemption. How much redemption? Or in how liberally? Do you give us a little slice of redemption? According to the riches of his grace. That's how much redemption we are having. In other words, a full redemption. A complete redemption. A lavish, that's the word he's going to use here, redemption. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So again, I just want to remind you what grace is. It is undeserved favor. Um, This salvation is not something that you do and you merit, you earn. Christ did not die for you because you deserved it, because you were worth it, because you merited it. He died for you as the gracious Father willed it. He died for you because it is the nature of our God to love the unlovely. This is an evidence of God's lavish grace. And again, you've got you to make this point because people today will turn the cross on its head and turn the cross into a demonstration of our worth. If, if, if the cross is a demonstration of our worth and it's not grace, it's shrewd business dealings. When, no, when you, when you get a good deal for something, when you pay $2 for something that normally costs $50, that's not grace, that's a shrewd business opportunity. And if God weighs out our value and says, well, these people are so much more valuable than my son, it's a good deal he gets. It's not grace. It's precisely because we were dead in our trespasses and sins, alienated from God. I mean, go on. He describes it again corporately in verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's not describing value. He's he's describing desolation. We were slaves to darkness. We were without God, without hope. We were far off. And because of God's grace, because of the overflow of his lavish grace, Understand, the gospel and Jesus' death on our behalf is a demonstration of abundant, ridiculous, lavish grace, which means we ridiculously did not deserve this. Because that's what grace is. It's unmerited or undeserved favor. And it has been lavished on us. Let me give you an example of what I mean by lavish, just abundant, ridiculous amounts. Go to his prayer in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14 For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend. Now watch him struggle to put into words the depth and the greatness of God's love and his grace for us. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the height and the length and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He uses a form of paradox that you could know the unknowable You could know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing or knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Now to him who can do far more than even I've just said. So Paul makes these lavish statements and he says, even that's too small. God can do way more than that. He has lavished his grace upon us. And it's seen principally in the redemption we have through his son, Jesus. Then, linking it with the next day, he ends verse 8 by saying, which he did in all wisdom and insight. Not only is God's grace lavishly poured out, it is done wisely. It's not haphazard. You know, sometimes you can just sort of, you know, my, my kid will bring me a cup and just spill. Overflows. God's grace overflows, but not like that. God's grace overflows intentionally wisely, prudently. And he moves on now to explain how this grace that redeems us, this grace that sets us free through the death of his son also is fitting into a bigger plan. And and this ties back to what I said in the first week, how, yes, God intends to have his sons and daughters face-to-face in his presence. He intends to adopt them. He predestined us for adoption. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be before him. But that fits into an even bigger plan which we then turn to now here. Blessed be God for revealing his plan. Blessed be God for revealing his plan. What? What is this? Well, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, I will only have a few minutes to deal with this here. Um, There's so much in these texts. But I take some comfort in knowing he's setting up things he's going to say. Just as the picture of being redeemed sets up the discussion in two, So this using of the word mystery sets up chapter 3. Turn to chapter 3, briefly, where he extensively discusses this concept. I'll remind you again what I've said before. Biblically, a mystery is not a whodunit. Rather, it's something previously hidden, now revealed. It's not like a... See, you read a normal mystery and you think, if I paid enough attention, I should have been able to figure it out. That's not what Paul means. Paul is not saying if you were an astute enough student of the Old Testament, you would have known this. Rather, this was something God did not clearly reveal. Now he has. Look at chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that is given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, not by his study. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles. You see, it wasn't made known. It took being revealed through a revelation. This isn't something Paul put together in his Bible study hour. It's something the Spirit revealed to him. And so he is celebrating that not only do we have this redemption, but God has made known to us back in the benediction of chapter 1. God is to be blessed for giving us this great redemption, this lavish grace in Christ, and for making known to us the mystery of his will. He's setting it up here for where he'll go in chapter 3. 
So, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so what? He has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now we have another according to. And here is according to his good pleasure. God is pleased to do this. This is God's happy plan. This is good pleasure. And the same word used in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption according um, as sons through Christ, according to the purpose, the good pleasure of his will. It pleased the Father to adopt us, and it has pleased the Father to have this plan for his son. According to his good pleasure and plan. When? As a plan for the fullness of time. So God, we are to understand that Christ's death on our behalf, and he'll explain more of this in the rest of the epistle, currently gives us a redemption. We currently have a redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. We we have been freed from the penalty of sin. God's wrath does not abide over us. God's anger does not abide over us. We have received a spirit of sonship. We have become his sons and daughters. We have received the forgiveness of our sins. But that Redemption is part of an administration, is part of a plan that's going somewhere in the fullness of time. And that is the mystery that God has revealed. He's revealed to Paul and to us the mystery of what he intends to do at the end of the story. The end of the story. When? As a plan for the fullness of time. Now, what is that purpose? This is, this is jaw-dropping and astounding. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So if I could sort of recap what he's saying is this. In Christ's death on the cross, through his bloody death, we have redemption, we have lavish grace poured out on us, but more than that, God has revealed to us that this act of salvation is part of an administration, is part of a plan, is part of a purpose that is going somewhere so that in the fullness of time, partly through his son's death and resurrection for his people, he will unite all things in Christ. That's that's what's being revealed. God has a plan. He has a purpose. And the purpose is to unite all things in him. So briefly, what does that mean? What does it mean to unite all things in him? Well, first we've got to talk about that word, unite. It's used only one other place in the Bible. It's normally a, a term for rhetoric. Um, it means to summarize. In fact, let me, let me quote from a commentator citing a contemporary of Paul's. He says this, Quintilian, who's a Jew, a little younger than Paul, um, writes of this word that it refers to a collection of the essential data of a case into a brief, coherent form that both reminds one of the crucial points scattered throughout the preceding speech and makes the point of the whole argument clear. So a, a person arguing, a lawyer or a speech giver might give a speech, and at the end, they grab their main points, they grab the part that unifies it, and they bring it all together as a summary if you ever watch legal proceedings, a lawyer brings a summary. They're doing this. Um, Lightfoot says this about it. 
Just as an orator or writer draws together the elements of an argument and shows how they demonstrate the chief point of a speech, so Christ will bring order to the universe. God will use Christ to bring together the disparate elements of creation, whether they are things in heaven or things on earth. So given that understanding, let me read to you the only other time this word is used in the New Testament, and it's in Romans 13, 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. The second half of the Ten Commandments, the ones that deal with people, primarily. And any other commandment are summed up, there's the word, in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So just as you shall love your neighbor and yourself, really ties together and shows you the framework for all the other horizontal commands. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. That's the idea. Here's the organizing principle. So that's your first point. Jesus then is and will be seen to be the organizing principle of all things. That's just stunning. All of creation will, because the notion of order and chaos is this. Order is things rightly related. Things are ordered when they're in relationship to each other. And Jesus will be the one to whom everything is ordered. Those people in hell will be in hell because of their relationship to Jesus. Those people at the Father's throne will be there because of their relationship to Jesus. The angels will exist as their relationship to Jesus. All things will come into their order and be unified in that sense. They'll be seen coherently as, to use another biblical space, as from him, through him, and to him. And this is a mystery. What he's saying is this. This son, who is not even clearly seen as such in the Old Testament. Yes, we see this Davidic son who's coming, the Messiah, David's greater son. David says to my Lord, the Lord said, sit at my right hand. Oh, there's hints. But to know that this one who is spoken of in the Old Testament is actually the centerpiece of the universe. Through whom the far distant galaxies... And every angelic being, and every human, and every atom, and every molecule finds its purpose and meaning. That's the mystery that God set forth in Christ that he intends to do. The purpose of history, then, is a proud father wanting to lift up and exalt his son and place his son in the proper place so that everything else finds its orbit and its purpose around him. That is a mystery. That is... A grand purpose. Next, secondly, he brings order and meaning to all things. Colossians again uses a similar phrase. Colossians 1, I'll start in 14 again, through 16. You'll see how Paul starts in the same place, talking about redemption, and then goes on to speak of this unifyingness, unitingness of Christ in a different way. Colossians 1, 14 to 16, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So everything exists for Christ. Everything. Every Adam in existence is from him. He holds it together and it exists for him. And in the fullness of God's plan and purpose, all things will be seen to be in relationship to him. It's therefore quite fitting, is it not, that we measure history on the planet Earth in reference to who? Jesus Christ. 
Up until recently, we dated everything as either before or after his advent. That type of thing is fitting. What I'm trying to show you, here's one way in which things find their relationship to Christ. Well, what year is it? Well, what year is it in relationship to Christ? That's the type of idea I'm talking about. He brings order and meaning to all things. And third, this plan also has in it the notion that he is head. He is the organizer over all things. Or blank, he is sovereign over all things. This is precisely where Paul goes in just a few verses. Go down to Ephesians 1.20. we got to go back further than that. we got to start a sentence at least. Paul has a bunch of really big sentences. Here's another one. Let's just go to verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love that you have toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus becomes the unifying theme. He's also the sovereign, the organizer. He is head over it all. Every title, every king, every prince, every power, spiritual or earthly, Christ is supreme and sovereign over. And and the mystery that God has revealed is not only is he after redeeming his sons and daughters. He is. He, He intends that you and I be before him. But he also intends that through that act of redemption, his son receives glory, right? Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven or on earth or under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What we learn is through this redemption, the Father's greater purpose of exalting his Son and unifying all things in his Son is being accomplished as well. And this too is meant to cause us to overflow into praise. This too is meant to cause us to overflow into worship and glory. What what is the purpose of life? People ask, what is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Rightly speaking, Christ. What's the purpose of Alpha Centauri? Christ. It's the purpose of this pulpit. The Son of God. It exists for him and from him and through him. And we, we receive this lavish grace. This one to whom all things are for died for us. As a demonstration not of our worth but of his glorious grace. Now we are about to share this table which celebrates that gift, that death, that blood. And I pray that we would do so with the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we would have some understanding of the glorious privilege that we share. Let me close in a word of prayer. I'll invite Pastor Daniel up, and we will celebrate the Lord's table. 
Lord God, give us eyes to see the immeasurable riches of your grace. Let us not see it as a small thing, but as a lavish, superabundant thing. A grace that exceeds our comprehension. Too wide, too high, too deep, too broad. But help us to see it a little bigger than we do now. Help us to understand it a little greater than we do now. In Jesus' name, amen.